Mental Workers, and welcome back to the Mental Work Podcast, your companion to early career psychology. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins, and today we are talking about how to include families and parents in discussions that you have in the therapy room. This can be a bit of a scary topic for early career psychologists because we're mostly trained in delivering one-to-one work. So when we think about including other people in the client's lives, we can feel a bit, oh, okay, I don't know how to do this. And, And I don't think we're given much guidance on it either. So here to help us unpack it and really skill us up in this area is Marie Vakakis. Hi, Marie. Hello. It's so nice to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's really exciting. I love talking about working with families and parents. Yeah, that's so cool. And so listeners, Marie is a mental health social worker. She's a family and couples therapist, and she also has her own podcast called This Complex Life, which normalizes conversations about mental health and relationships, which I think is uber cool. I've listened to a few episodes and I think they're really fantastic and just really practical as well. So I'd recommend checking it out. And Marie, tell us something else about yourself. What's outside of Marie work life look like for you? What's a passion that you have? Oh, I'm an avid hiker. I actually just had a hiking trip planned that got rained out this weekend, so a little bit bummed, but uh, I like to go out um, for a couple of day hiking, kind of exploring trips with no phone reception. It's just so divine. And yeah, I do yoga and the gym on a more regular basis. Wow, what a dream. That sounds amazing, the no phone reception in particular. Yeah. <laughs> a, a dream for some and a nightmare for others, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I bet it would be. Marie, I'm Curious to know what led you to wanting to come on and talk about this topic of working with families and parents? It's sort of hardly been my own experience starting off. My bachelor degree was actually in psychology and then I realized it actually did have a very individual focus and it didn't quite land for me. So I moved into social work and then over many of years started working with young people and I was like, this is great. I know how to do this. And then they came with parents and they'd bring the parents in. I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do right now. <laughs> and I felt, you know, I really did them a disservice. I felt like I was just giving parents a flyer or a leaflet or saying, this is what you need to do. And really had no understanding of the impact of the system on the young person and making some really, really simple mistakes. Like I remember giving someone this journal, it was a gratitude journal prompt saying, why don't you do this at home? over dinner, you know, Monday it had three prompts that you talk about, Tuesday three prompts. And they kind of looked to me and like, we don't have dinner together. You know, they didn't even have a dining table. And so it was all these assumptions that I would make about, well, of course parents are just going to be capable of doing that. Or of course they're doing this. Well, why wouldn't they just do that? And so I went back and started family therapy and sort of did some couples therapy training as well. And I've brought that all in. And it's one of the things, once you know it, you can't unsee it. And so it's really hard not to think of the impact of the system, especially when working with young people, with people who still live with their parents, who are very much trying their best to navigate their parents' hopes, dreams, desires, any parent or, you know, marital conflict, multiple siblings. Uh, I think it was really important to find a way to give that voice and understand that as part of conceptualizing what's happening for that young person. Yeah. So it was really tapping into your own experiences and noticing perhaps that the strategies that you're giving parents had made some assumptions about what their system looks like and wanting to upskill in that area. Yeah, absolutely. And even putting words to what is sometimes families think is really obvious, but they 
they don't say it explicitly. And I'll I'll give you a recent example of a young person. I had the them and their parent in for a session, and I know the parent thinks their young person is amazing. I think she's an amazing young person as well. But throughout the week, they're fighting about technology, bedtimes, curfews, homework, you know all the stuff that you would fight about. And she slowly started to forget that her parents actually think she's this awesome person. So really when I had them in the room, a part of me had to pause the conversation and say, mum thinks you're amazing, wonderful human. I actually think you're incredible. And I don't know if you get told that or not enough and mum's sitting there going yeah of course I think that but had never actually said that Mm. and once we could put words to it the young person could soften to realize mum wasn't trying to be controlling mum was scared and mum couldn't articulate that so then I was able to say I think mum's really scared of what might happen if these things aren't in place and then we can have the conversation from a very different position than just all right what's a reasonable curfew and what's the consequence if you don't hand your phone in at that time and what happens if you're not home by this time on Saturday that would have been so just it wouldn't have done anything really useful but actually coming at it with empathy and understanding and thinking what's happening between them what's not being said was so much more powerful in that moment. Yeah, I think that's a really good example and a really powerful demonstration of how considering how the parent feels and how the young person is perceiving their parent is really important to consider rather than just jumping straight to a a stock standard, say, behavioural intervention. Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't think it it lasts. And especially for adolescents, attachment and connection are the biggest tool you have. So behavior intervention, you might get compliance if they're scared of you. They might be compliant if they're terrified of being punished, but that's not respect. That's not attachment. That's not security and safety. It might be compliance. And I don't know if that's what people really want. Mm, No, it's a really great point. And I think even just hearing you speak, it highlights a lot of gaps in my knowledge around this area. So I don't work with young people under 18 anymore. I used to, but we didn't have any parents come in and we certainly weren't encouraged to have parents come into our sessions when I did work with young people. I remember that we were encouraged if the parent requested to set aside 10 minutes at the end of the session to talk with them, which I always felt was very inadequate, but we just never had the encouragement and the training. But the way that you're talking about it, it seems essential. Yeah, we don't do it. In my practice in the therapy hub, we don't have um, young people under 18 come without their parents. So we try and get, ideally, I'd like to see the parents first if they've made the referral, um, but at least for a good handful of the sessions, they're in there for half, if not all of it. And then we have some even parent-only sessions with the permission of the young person because even something as practical as if I'm teaching someone a grounding technique and I'm saying something like, every time you're flooded, I need you to get up go to the bathroom, splash some water on your face. And the parents don't know. And they're having dinner and the young person's flooded and they go to the bathroom to wash their face. They might get yelled at. They might be told off, why are you leaving the table? Why are you doing it? So even just being able to give context to some of the tools and strategies that we're experimenting with can mean that the parents don't accidentally exacerbate that distress or they know how to support or they might actually be able to use it as a reminder. So it really feels like they're such a valuable piece and they want to be involved. They really do. They want to know what's happening with the most important person in their life. Mm. So I think there's two things that I'm wondering. I think like from the perspective of early career psychologists, they might feel scared to include parents or they might 
want to include parents but not know how to. And then I think there's this third thing where it's like sometimes early career psychologists, they may not be parents themselves and they think, who am I to advise this parent of what they can do? Do I think that I know better than them about their child? So they don't want to be imposing. And I'm just wondering if you've seen any of these uh, reactions or attitudes in people you've supervised. Look, and I think I felt all of them. I don't have children myself, but I'm not actually imposing or or directing anything. I'm actually holding space for that conversation to kind of unravel it. So at any point you start off being a novice. So it might be that you just bring someone in for 10 minutes and then you talk about that in supervision. Then you might do a little bit of training or listen to a podcast. You know, you can upskill as you go. It's totally fine. So I don't I have to be perfect at it out of the gate. No. And I think that's even something too overt. I don't know if psychologists are very good at doing this. Um, I think actually a lot of therapists aren't, but I'm I'm coming more from a stance of actually saying, this is what I can do. And these are the limitations. So even saying, look, I'm not a family therapist, but I really find it valuable to have the parents come in for the last 10, session, 10 minutes of the session. What I'd like to talk to in this time might not be everything that's on your bucket list, on your wish list or whatever, but this is what I can offer. So actually holding that professional stance in the room, holding that space and actually just being clear about what you can and can't offer can still be really reassuring for people because you're not going outside your scope. Mm, And then you're not telling them, look, I can't offer anything, but you are offering value with the things that you can do. Yeah. So you can say, I've only got 10 minutes. It'd be great if we had more sessions. If you feel, if I feel it's needed, I might refer you on to a family therapist. In these 10 minutes, this is what I can do. I can give you a brief update of what I'm doing with your young person. We can have 10 minutes where you can tell me some of your concerns and I can mull it over and see what we do with that in the next session. Or uh, it's a chance for us to sort of just look at what's working really well and actually just take a moment to reflect on the progress we've made so far. How does that sound or which option sounds best? So you're not directing and you're not really telling anything, you're not prescribing it, you have to do this or you should do this. It's coming in with this knowledge that they are doing the best they can, that they will be there will be a very good reason for whatever behavior the parents are exhibiting as well. And we're trying to understand that. So much like working with clients, we're having a very collaborative relationship with our parents and not one where we're in putting ourselves in a position of authority over them. I mean, we know that doesn't work for everyone else either. Like nobody likes being told that you should do this. No, they don't. No. <laughs> yeah. And like that sounds like a really warm and inviting approach about letting them know what you can and can't do and then inviting them to talk about their concerns and some of the good things as well. I think that maybe touches on another fear that I reckon early career psychologists have is that the parent might be adversarial, like they might think that you as the psychologist are going to blame them for their child's behaviours that they see as challenging. And so they're worried that the parent might be adversarial. What would you say to that? I would probably normalise that. I would actually bring the parent in and say, I'm wondering if a part of you feels that I'm going to tell you off. You know, use some parts and it makes sense. You've probably had a number of professionals up until now not include you, give you medication, give you scripts, tell you this. And it makes sense that you would feel like you can't trust me. This is what I can provide. How do we work together? Like you can actually overt that and then problem solve that with the parent. 
and say, I know you're doing the best you can. You keep showing up. You keep dropping them off at our appointments. You keep paying the fees or taking time off work. Like I know you're doing everything you can. Wow, that's such a beautiful approach. <laughs> Normal and really normalizing that yeah, for them. Of course. Like it's like as soon as you say it, I'm like, oh yeah, duh, that makes heaps of sense. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, like, do you find that that approach is helpful and is effective? Well, everybody will have different levels of what they're hoping to get out of, of a session, but it's a lot harder to like it's not disingenuous. I'm not being secretive, I'm being honest. Like that's probably their fear. And I want to work with them. I've got them there in that moment. I can offer something that might take it on a different track. I'm curious about parents who might not trust you as well in that maybe they're they're experiencing burnout, the parent themselves. Maybe they've lived a long time with behaviours that they see in their child, which I guess are associated with some stress to them and they're thinking, look, I want help, but when I come to see the therapist, are they going to provide me with strategies or suggestions that add to my mental load rather than alleviate it? Like, you know, they're at the the end of their ropes. I I have a feeling that this is going to be the discuss it with them, but I'm curious to hear what you think. I think that's really tricky because there are some things that do take longer to start with and then pay off later. So if you're thinking about, I always picture like a little kid on a high chair and it's easier to just shovel the food in their mouth and get it over and done with rather than see them grab a meatball, throw it on the floor, pick up the spaghetti, swing it around. You learn to use their their hands. So it might be in telling, using an analogy with the parent and actually saying, I know that this sounds like a lot. What's the minimum viable product that might have the biggest gain? And for some people it might be, you know, that they get a lift to the bus stop and that two minutes in the car they just get to connect. Maybe it's they need a text message or a meme throughout the day to feel like their parents thinking of them. It's actually figuring out what is a small bit that might not be so taxing and often those bits are the ones that involve connection because we get a lot more responsiveness from a young person if they feel connected to their parent, if they feel that there's respect there. So it's really hard to say without knowing the individual circumstances, but I would acknowledge that saying this is hard. It's really, really hard and I don't have a quick fix. And sometimes that that's the truth because it might involve, we might need, you know, you might need to think of babysitters and going to, you know, work stuff and find it. There'd be a million things. So it's actually thinking, well, what is within my scope? What's the bit that I can change in the time that I have them here with me and maybe in the commute home? Yeah. Again, I think that's a really beautiful approach and it speaks to like how, how I guess like calm and collaborative you seem to be in your approach with families, which is really fantastic. I'm just trying to think of any other anxieties that I can think of. And then I'll ask you if there's any that we haven't touched on. I think one, which might be common for early career therapists is this imposter syndrome so that the parent is going to work out that the therapist doesn't know anything when the therapist actually does know things. So one, it's like, you know, a therapist kind of thing, not acknowledging their skills and knowledge in the area. But I think the early career therapist can be like, they're going to work out that I'm an idiot here and that I don't know anything about what to do with their family and with their system. And I guess I'm wondering, have you experienced this? And if so, how did you manage it? 
I still experience it all the time. And then depending on the person or the family, I might be really honest. Like when I first started working with uh, trans folk, for example, I had a, a person I was working with. I'm like, look, this is where my knowledge is limited. and I will keep learning because it's an area that I'm going to explore. If you outgrow what I can offer, we'll refer you on. But I'm happy to keep learning and keep doing my training and understand more about transitioning and the hormones and the side effects and all of this stuff. And if this works for you, we'll keep talking. So for some, I really overt, I'm learning about this topic and does that work with you? And for other people, it can be sort of holding space in the session. You can hold space without having to know a lot. And then you can case conceptualize afterwards. You can hold space for the session. And if people are really pressuring you saying, look, I can say this is really important and I'm not going to do your family justice if I jump in right now with a solution because I need some more information. So, you you know, you can model that authenticity. You can role model that boundary setting of what you're prepared to do. And you can role model that I value this and I'm going to think about it a little bit in between our sessions. I'm going to chat with my supervisor or I'm going to map it all out and I'm going to come back to you next session with a little bit more structure or with some feedback of what came to mind. How does that sound? So it's really showing people they're important. You're prepared to learn a little bit more and you're not just making it up. And I still think that kind of honesty will get you better therapeutic rapport. I agree. It it To me, like hearing you say that, it really seems that you don't seem to have any embarrassment or negative feelings about what the limitations of your scope are. So you're not like, oh, I'm such a failure for not knowing this thing. It's really just meeting reality where it's at and being like, look, I'm good at these things and I can do this and I can offer this. However, this is where the scope of my knowledge lies and ends. How does that land for you? Is that right? Yeah, because a lot of the a lot of the additional training I've been doing myself and po- listening to podcasts and thinking about what the user experience is like, that's the stuff that people complain about when they go to see a therapist. They don't care if we're schema trained, EMDR trained, active. That that makes no sense to them. Often, they want to know that the person is being honest. They're reliable. They know that therapeutic relationship. You know, if you look at a is it like a common factors approach or something like that? Those are the skills that matter more than any of the other modalities. So being really clear on those and talk about the talking, what you're going to do, seems to be a lot easier for us because we don't have to feel like we're stretching ourselves away out of our comfort zone. And it's also being open, honest and realistic with the person in front of us. Amazing. Yes, I love that. And I find that reassuring too, that anxious part of me. (laughs) So I hope listeners find that reassuring as well to hear and very validating. I'm just wondering, Marie, are there any other anxieties that you've had in working with parents and families that we haven't talked about? There are a few, but I wanted to just pick on something you said about your anxieties. I actually think that sometimes depending on the context, you can actually bring that to the session because if the, if the person in front of you is tugging something, there's a chance they do that to other people. And so you might be able to say a part of me really wants to jump in and rescue you, right? Maybe there's something in their, in the way they're speaking or in the way they're acting that's bringing people to them to rescue them. So you might say, look, a part really wants to jump in and rescue. Another part of me just wants to give you the biggest hug and tell you it's going to be okay. And another part of me also wants to just run away because I think, wow, 
this must be a lot. And if we open this box, it's going to be a can of worms. Oh, man, sometimes all these parts are happening at once. So you can you can overt that too, though, right? I love that. It's like, yeah, so it really is noticing your own feelings and reactions that you have with different clients and bringing that to the surface and discussing it because it might be something like you say that you're being pulled into or that they might show up in relationships outside of the therapeutic space. Absolutely. It's information. Yeah. So it's not feelings to be afraid of or feelings that you always have to neutralize straight away. It can be feelings that are useful therapeutically. They can be. And it's then it's in your supervision to start to work out what is information in the room and what is a sensitivity for you or something that's triggering a response that's not really matching that situation. And that's in the stuff you either talk about in supervision or in your own personal therapy. So it's on a continuum. We don't want to say all feelings are bad, but we don't want all reactions to be okay as well. So it's using that your discretion with, is this going to be helpful in the moment? If this person is lacking some relational skills or some insight, if I share these parts of me, feel these things, might that be helpful for our work together? So cool. Marie, I think where I want to jump to next is I'm really curious about how to involve families. Like I know that's the topic of the episode, but like I guess, yeah, having been trained in a one-to-one framework, involving another party, another person in the system like blows my mind. I'm like, how do I conceptualize that? How, what are the what are my ethical obligations? Like, are they my client? Are both the clients? I don't get it. I think when you're if you're doing family therapy, then the system is the client. So it. it's like with couples therapy, that's very different. If you're bringing parents into a young person session, the young person is your client. So you're still maintaining their confidentiality and whatever boundaries you have around that. And I think even bringing the parents in for that initial discussion about confidentiality, it can be really helpful. So bringing them in, sitting everyone down, introducing yourself, introduce how you like to work and what your uh, expectations are of them and how you like, you can set that up and normalize that. You can say, you know, we have, you know, your young person here, look, I don't know that I'm going to be able to understand everything in the first few sessions. So it might take up to three or four for me to really understand what's happening after session six is when I send you back to your GP if you've got a mental health care plan. So you can involve parents into that and then say, what we talk about is private between us. So I'm not going to pick up the phone and tell your parents or call your school unless I'm worried about your safety or the safety of someone else. And then parents... I'm not going to keep secrets. So if you email me a concern, I'm not going to say, well, you know, you know, so you can talk about how you hold that room and what your boundaries are about conversations in between sessions, uh, what you want, what communication is okay. You might ask a young person, look, I'm going to call your parents when there's a billing issue or scheduling issue, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's still actually, that could be where you start is actually just setting your boundaries, understanding confidentiality and letting them know what to expect. And that can then help the parents adjust their expectations of what, you know, are they going to get emails every day or are they expecting to be involved or they then start to know this is what we can expect from this person. So it's really setting up a frame of how you work and what, what the boundaries are. I think that's really great. I'm just 
interested to know, like you sound very practiced when you say those things, like those phrases that you say. And I'm wondering, is that like an experience thing? Did you have to practice saying that and really remember to say about like between session communications? Was it a thing you built over time? It's often a thing I built over time because something went wrong and I was like, oh, I have to do this now. But, you know, whenever I've learned something new, even in my couples therapy, and even now sometimes if there's a particular thing I want to make sure, I still have a notepad in front of me and I'll make sure I go through some of the questions. Like I'm not, I don't find anything wrong with that. So it might be that you sit there and be like, look, I've just got some admin that I want to make sure I go through so I cover everything. Grab out your notepad or your iPad or whatever you've got and say, I just want to make sure that you understand these things. So you can actually give yourself a little checklist and use that to redirect your attention and focus so that you can go through it so it feels contained and composed. People often don't mind unless you're sitting there with the piece of paper blocking the two of you and it's at a desk like you're at a medical clinic. You know, if you're considered of your body language you know they're sitting at a comfortable distance you've got your notepad sort of next to you most people they don't mind that stuff especially if you're being honest and say I just want to make sure I don't miss anything and then uh, I'll put the notepad away or like it's still it's just talking about your process and normalizing that for you and the clients yeah I love that you said that because I still do that so I'm like three years now into being a generally registered psychologist and even as a provisional psychologist I would literally bring textbooks in and be like I'm not too sure of this I want to make sure I get it right and I'll just have the book there and I've never had a client push back or I guess it it overtly affect our relationship. In fact, it's enhanced it by me being authentic about the limitations of my knowledge and that I'm really trying here and I want to make sure I do the right thing by you. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to do it. And it, it takes the pressure off because you can't be an expert in any everything. No, it's impossible. Yeah. And nobody expects you to either. Like that would just be nuts. Yeah. But if you're going to try it, try it with one of the bits that feels the least you know, challenging for you. So maybe it's the next intake. You just, you bring the, you're like, oh, is that your parents in the waiting room? How about we bring them in? I'll just have them in for five minutes. I'll do my little spiel and then they can leave. And you might just start with that. Uh, You might start with, maybe you want to start off with recapping positives. So if you're actually getting some really great gains with the young person, maybe you bring the family in and saying, I just want to take some time to actually reflect on how far you've come, how consistent you've been. Maybe you do some strengths work and you bring out strengths cards and you make it fun and say, okay, I want you to pick out three strengths for your young person and tell me an example of how they've shown each one. You know, really wanted to end this, you know, episode of care or this period of work or our sixth session, you know, you can have these little mini signposts to mark chunks of work. So you can start off with positive stuff if you don't have to go with the most complex um, family to start with. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm interested, I think, in two things. I'm curious with the setting boundaries about out-of-session contact from parents, I'm wondering, I've seen this a bit on social media, like people asking questions about this, but you've told the parent of the boundary and then the young person has a fight with their bestie, they're not telling the parent about it, parent wants to know, they know that they've talked about it with you in session, they send you an email being like, I want to know the goss. How do you reinforce that boundary or what do you do there? 
It really depends. And every, everyone I work with in supervision has a slightly different way. So we really, we can't stop them giving us information. If they're in the waiting room, they could be yelling through the door, being, yeah. don't forget to tell her about them. Yeah. You know, so we can't, we can't, we can't um, ignore that, but we can choose how to respond. So you might have an automatic email reply saying, if you're emailing between sessions, this is what I can and can't do. So you might choose to not even open that email. Okay. You might, you might choose to, depending on the family, to, you might open that email and say, this is something I need the parents to come in for. Or maybe if you've made it really clear that I'm not going to hide information and the parent sends that, then maybe it's a way for the parent, they're trying to get you to help them have that conversation. So it could be that you bring them in and saying, okay, so I got this email from mum. Mum, do you want to tell me what was in the email? Okay, what made that hard to talk about? That could still be information, wow. but so genius. <laughs> but it's it's really tricky, and and I do it a lot. Where you know, especially the more critical some pa- parents feel that their young person is is exhibiting really kind of scary uh, things, like maybe they're self harming. That it really activates the system, and it can cause a lot of anxiety. And it's really trying to tell parents, I can do a parent session. You can come in at the end. You can come in at the start. But this is getting in the way of the work that I'm doing, or this is not what I can help with right now. So it can be really, it can be really tricky. And there are cases where I still take to supervision and I unpack it and we, you know, reformulate together, but in general, it's, it's trying to have that kind of transparency. Yeah, no, that sounds like great suggestions. As I was listening to you speaking, I've pushed out the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which I'll come back to later. This is very ADHD of me. I'm just like, okay, hold that and then forget that and then come back to this thing. (laughs) Um, So as you were speaking, I was thinking, this sounds like a lot. And I'm wondering whether there is an increased mental load or stress associated with working with both parents and the young person as opposed to just one-to-one? And if there is, how you take care of yourself with that increased stress? It, it definitely does. And I think that sometimes I, I try not to have more than two appointments back to back and I will try, I probably need to tweak it so that after a parent, like a family session, I have a bit of a break because the case formulation, it feels a lot bigger yeah, uh, and it feels a lot, um, a lot of parts that I'm trying to kind of put together. And it's also the times where you get the biggest rewards the most quickly. So it does have these kind of sometimes high risk, high reward. Um, but I try to leave, like maybe I would recommend someone starting out have that like have that gap like make it a 90 minute block in your diary have the kind of 50 minute session and then have your kind of downtime that's a good idea you can kind of put those pieces in and I think people you get into a bit of a flow over time of what fits your diary especially me I'm lucky in private practice I can kind of move my things around and, and and schedule things accordingly but being aware of your own energy and what which sessions are taxing which aren't when I see couples we make that first session like a a time and a half, so a 75-minute session, and then I have that bigger break at the end because that's uh, that's required for me to digest everything. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think it really normalises the idea that it's it's often quite hard for us to go between, you know, back-to-back sessions, particularly when we've had a, yeah, more mentally taxing work. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think one, one thing, and this people will probably be like, absolutely not. I'm not doing this. Um, 
but what I'm about to suggest, I would, if you're going to give this a go, I would ask for permission to record the session, set up a template or set up a consent form and tell your clients, I'm doing some advanced training in working with families. You know, is it okay if I record? Uh, Only me and my supervisor will watch that. So what was most helpful about my family therapy course was we do the therapy while our team is watching us. So we have a room, the double-sided mirror, our whole little reflective practice group sits behind the double-sided mirror and watches us run a family therapy session. Sounds terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, and we we do this for two years. And so I've watched, you know, a dozen other people do family therapy and I've had that many people watch me and what you learn from that is so much more helpful. So there's nothing to stop you doing that with a supervisor, recording, even watching it back yourself, seeing what you missed, maybe someone shuffled in their chair and then going through, why did I say that? What could I have done? And you can even share those reflections with that family or with that person. So People are actually, it's very funny. I'm always nervous to ask for recordings and very few people say no, and it doesn't ruin the therapeutic relationship. I'll mention it to them. I send them the consent form and saying, again, just if you ignore it completely, I'm not going to remind you. I'm not going to ask you about it again. And that's, it's such a good way to learn. No, I completely agree. And I know we'll freak out a lot of listeners, but I did an episode earlier just on recording sessions and talked about the value of doing it because I've been recording a lot of my sessions for my schema therapy accreditation. And I have to say that it just provides a huge boost in learning when you review a video, like one instance comes to mind where it's like, I was writing down a note, client has a reaction and they change their facial expression and body language. I miss that and come back to the client with, I guess, a happy tone of voice when really I needed to match a different emotional expression that was taking place. And I wouldn't have known that unless I had seen the video. So you can pick up on a lot of stuff that you miss and it just, it's such valuable feedback. And I echo what you've experienced, Marie. I've never had, I've actually never had a client decline to record a session. I've had a few who are like, tell me more about it. And then I've actually had the opposite response of like, tell me when you're recording next and I'll be happy to come in anytime. I'm very happy to support your learning. And I'm like, okay, great. (laughs) So, you know, I've had the opposite response as well. And yeah, it's, it's so much, um, better I find for supervision because when you're in supervision, you're talking about new skills that you're learning. You're really remembering what you've done from your perspective and then relaying that from to the supervisor and the supervisor is applying what they think has happened. But with a video, you just get everything in real time. So there's no interpretation, you know, no like middle person. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's confronting. It can be confronting, it's confronting but yeah. <laughs> it's such a, it's such a good learning experience. And I, I've never had a supervisor made me feel like they're judging me. They often yeah, same. quite have a lot of um, respect and humility for, you know, for sharing that vulnerable space. Um, and I've never judged a fellow colleague who's done that as well, because everybody has a level of skill that's gotten to, to this place. And I actually have a lot more admiration for someone who's like, I'm really stuck. Can you watch this with me? And someone who's saying I'm really stuck and they're continuing doing the things the same way. 100%. I agree. Yeah. And really important. I've never had a supervisor judge me for my videos either. Um, it's always been quite supportive and the feedback has been really valuable and it, it, it can be confronting, but I guess sitting with that discomfort and that knowledge that, yeah, we're not perfect, but we're learning and that's okay to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. One thing I wanted to ask was, and this comes out of the, this is a complete 360. I wanted to know what's the best thing about working with young people and their parents? I think for me, it's 
it feels like early intervention and prevention. So if I can get the them communicating in a way that's different to what maybe brought them there, they might grow up to have a better relationship, maybe be better partners and then better parents themselves. So it's, it's re- that relational shift is, is so rewarding to see when it goes well. Mm, that's really beautiful. Um, I really love that. So like if I'm a one-to-one therapist, why should I consider involving parents and perhaps seeking further training in training in this area? Like what have you seen as the rewards? Well, you're only with that person for maybe 50 minutes once a week or once a fortnight and they're with their family or with the outside world all that other time. And so you have a really good opportunity there to, sh- to shine a light on some of the things that the family might be able to benefit from. So it really is setting them up for a different experience by bringing that family in. That's awesome. Okay. I want to know where you did your family training and then I want to ask something else. It just, there's so much to ask you on this topic. Yeah, go for yeah. it. <laughs> so where did you do your training? So I did it at the Bouvery Centre, which I've is through La, La, La Trobe Uni. Um, there is, there are other options if people want to just get a taster. I know the the book that we used, um, there's a therapist in the US called Diane Gayhart, and she has some really great easy digestible books. And she also has a YouTube lecture series. So if you go into type in her name, Diane Gayhart in YouTube, she's actually recorded a lot of her lectures. Wow, so isn't that fantastic. Yeah. You'll be able to get some really simple kind of things around case conceptualization or Bowen family system. So you'll be able to get a bit of a taster to see if it's the sort of stuff you like. Oh, what a great suggestion. Yeah. As early career psychs, we love free stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's like so good to get that taster because like I assume with the Boofery Center, was it, um, that yeah. it, it costs, you know, like a few thousand dollars. It's a full master's. So. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Added a zero onto Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And did you enjoy your experience in family therapy training there? I did. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I can't unsee it now. So now that I know how to work with families, it's, I I do that work even with individuals and having that reflective practice group is so valuable because you learn how to be in the space. Well, the way you talk about it is the way that I think about learning a language. Cause when I think about learning languages, I think not only that you are learning the specific words, but you're learning to see a culture and like a world view from like a different perspective. And when you talk about families, it just reminds me of that. And I wonder whether like you can, that resonates with you. Yeah, absolutely. It really does. It's learning it in conversation rather than just through a textbook. Yeah. That's so cool. The other question I had was, okay, so as a psychologist, and and I'm sure this is same for the social workers as well. The key thing that we're taught about adolescence is that the key psychosocial stage is individuation. So they want to get away from their parents, discover who they are, value the social group over their parents. And I wonder how that shows up in therapy. Like how do you honor the maturational stage of wanting to individuate with it's, it might be causing difficulty with a parent if they think that their parents out to get them and rule in their lives. Like uh, that's probably, is that a hard question? No, okay, it cool. makes, that makes a lot of sense. I usually see that rupture start to happen from that kind of primary school to high school transition. And then it gets a little bit harder. 
one of the things I do is I work a lot with parents in that moment saying or normalizing their feelings of rejection Mm. because that's often what they're feeling. They had this really cute little kid in primary school who maybe wanted to hold hands and give them a cuddle and had their lunchbox patched packed to now someone who they almost don't know anything about. So trying to understand where the parents, how they feel, maybe even labeling that rejection or feeling excluded or they're not a part of it, and then helping them understand how do they respond when they feel that way. So one of the analogies I use with with people is this, we call it you're moving from manager to consultant. So they need parents in this manager role to organize things and, and get them places and have play dates. And then somewhere along the line, they get fired. And parents can handle this in a number of ways. They can fight for unfair dismissal. They can spend years in litigation trying to keep their job. Uh, They can say, well, stuff you, I didn't need this anyway. Good riddance. Uh, Or they can be like, well, fine, and get all passive aggressive. So they can handle it in a number of different ways. But what we want to see is an acceptance of uh, that role is no longer required. And how can I get hired back as the consultant? This role between us has changed. My position description is new and they need, they really still need their parents there. It looks different. And so normalizing that for parents can help go a long way. Wow. I love that. Did you come up with that? No, I wish I did. So good. (laughs) It's so good. But like, I love the way that you've explained that. It's, uh, it just, um, I think puts it all together and really does normalize the parents' feelings in that. And, you know, it can be shocking to be fired and then move into a a new role, like, and pick up your stuff from the desk and then have to move down the hallway. And yeah. Yeah. And one thing, like, I I think some people make this mistake and I definitely did. Like I even have a extra training in just like a graduate diploma in youth and adolescent mental health. And there was nothing in there about working with families, which is Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. But thinking about, I try and consume some content that is targeted to parents. So I'm not always just looking at things for young people. So I'll be listening to podcasts like Parental as Anything. I'll be listening to um, Ask Lisa, which is Lisa Demur's podcast, and her books are excellent. So actually hearing parents' stories, parents' concerns, parents' worries can really help because that I can bring that in and saying, I wonder if you heard this from your young person and it made you scared about X, Y, Z, like really normalizing the parents' experiences in that as well, because they can't, they can't, you know, the young person can't be what they can't see. And so sometimes we have to help the parent understand what they're feeling and how to articulate it so it can go back into the system to help our young person. Absolutely. Mm. Marie, you've given me a lot to think about. It's been so wonderful to listen to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm wondering if there's anything that we've missed that maybe like any <laughs> any wisdom that you want to impart to listeners just about working with parents and families. Oh, I think give give it a go. Yeah. It's- it almost it almost feels um, wrong not to have some involvement with family, especially for your working with younger people. Um, and I guess that you know a lot of the data out there, the Mental Health Commission, you know, every, everything is saying parents want to be involved, and that's the best course of treatment. So we actually really do need to find a way to bring them in, to bring families in, to bring connection in, um, because that is the best way. Yeah. No, wonderful. And Marie, if listeners want to learn more about you or get in touch, where can they find you? 
so they can um my pra- my practice is called the therapy hub so that's therapyhub.com.au and my a kind of supervision and consulting and training is at Mariva Vakaka. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So I'll be uh, over the, over next year, I'll be releasing um, some training that helps actually talk about some of this stuff. So how to do the first three session kind of structure, wow, cool. how to bring families in the room. So it's some of the things that we use internally to train our team. And I'll be recording that and having that sort of on demand um, there as well. And my parenting program connected teens will be up there as well. So I'm on LinkedIn and all the different social media channels as well. Great. No, I think that's amazing. And yes, we'll pop those links in the show notes. Thank you again, Marie, for coming on. It really like opens my mindset and I feel like, yeah, you have such a a calm and uh, lovely approach to involving parents and just it just makes it seem like the obvious thing to do that. (laughs) Yeah, like you said, like it just you just can't unsee it. Um, so yes, it's, it's been really wonderful to listen to you. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. No worries. It's been fun. Great. Well, thank you listeners for listening. Have a good one and catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. Podcasts are pretty tough and it's really hard to get the word out there. So there are a couple of things you could do to really help us out. One, leave a review. Second, consider sharing the podcast with your peers. We would love you for it. Thanks for listening and see you next time.